Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Crystal Lee. She is a PhD candidate at MIT and a fellow at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. And today we're going to talk about data visualizations, online misinformation, politics and so on. So Crystal, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much, Ricardo, for this invitation. It's a privilege to talk with you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Okay, so let's start with data visualizations because that's one topic you focus a lot in your work. Uh, what is the kind of thing we're talking about here? Oh, it's a really expansive term. I mean, I guess um, in terms of a lot of the data visualizations that I study online, um, I think one thing to distinguish is I'm interested in the kind of visual culture around data visualization, but maybe more importantly, I'm kind of interested in the social ecosystem around which data visualization lives. So the way that people talk about how they use data to make decisions, the way that they talk about data as a way to justify certain kinds of policies, how they manipulate data or how like certain information can be rendered visible um, through graphics. So whether it be um, line charts, bar charts, infographics, I think it's a really expansive term. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you work at the intersection, I guess, between several different disciplines, like, for example, history and ethnography to try to understand the sort of cultural factors that play a role in how people interpret and make data visualizations, correct? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, uh, and how, how do data visualizations apply to certain specific topics? Like, for example, do, do you study how they apply in the realm of politics? Yeah, I mean, so the major study that I've done that's published in um, ACM Chi, which is computer-human interaction, is really about how data visualizations have been mobilized, particularly in the United States, on social media to um, either justify social distancing restrictions um, or in many cases um, to try to really resist like things like mask guidance, um, uh, lockdown orders. I mean, I think there, there are a range of policies that exist um, in the US right now about um, how to deal with a pandemic and really the kind of ecosystem that I was interested in um, was a, a kind of category of anti of what we call anti-mask protesters who are really trying to resist a whole swath of policies um, that in many ways I think is um, quite dangerous. Um, and I think the study is really about how, um, you know, maybe standard data visualizations as espoused in um, mainstream media like CNN or the Financial Times most famously, um, how those uh, exist in so uh, how those seem diametrically opposed to a lot of the visualizations that are shared um, by a lot of these anti-mask Facebook groups um, and on Twitter. So these are the kinds of things that we tried to study historically and ethnographically um, to get a, a kind of more granular understanding of how people talk about data. But I mean, uh, in the case of these groups that are anti-mask and anti-social distancing and other stuff like that, they are manipulating data, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on um, 
how you want to think about manipulating. I mean, I think so the kind of um, hypothesis uh, that we kind of came into, and I think this is a kind of um, uh, thought that is shared throughout a lot of computer science statistics, like this kind of research that's grounded in um, uh, data visualization more broadly. I think there's a kind of impulse to talk about how a lot of these kinds of data visualizations are either the result of willful manipulation or ignorance. Um, and like in that sense, what's necessary are these like renewed initiatives to teach people how to read data, to teach them how to think about science. Um, when in reality, I think what our study showed is that a lot of the methods that might be a part of this kind of wave of data literacy are things that a lot of these anti-mask groups show in all sorts of ways. Um, so when it comes to being critical about data sources or um, being really cognizant of um, how certain visualization types can uh, provide certain kinds of insights. I mean, I think these are the real factors and the real practices that we've been able to uncover in this study. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, in that case, um, are there certain traits that these people share and that explain why they divulge this kind of misinformation? Oh, absolutely. So I think the two main ones um, that we point out in the study are first um, this, uh, the refocus on um, deaths rather than cases. So I think a lot of the um, media attention, at least in the US, is about how there are just these rising number of cases, I mean, in the millions, um, in a way that seems really unstoppable. And I think a lot of these groups completely discount this statistic. Um, they think that, you know, whether or not someone tests positive um, is dependent on a whole swath of things. I think um, for some of these groups, they're really, um, they really double down on the fact that uh, certain hospitals or certain healthcare groups uh, might be more financially incentivized to give people a positive um, test rather than a negative one because they'll get some kind of benefit. Um, and so I think in many ways, like the kind of fixation on how lossy of a category um, positive versus negative tests are um, leads them to completely shift focus on deaths. Um, so I think a lot of the analysis then becomes rejected by these groups. Um, I think the other trick is to really question the how their personal experience locally maps onto these statewide um, or even nationwide statistics. So I think in a lot of municipalities, um, they don't necessarily have resources to collect data in as robust a way as maybe on like the county or even the state level. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, in their personal experience, they may not know someone who has COVID or you know, within their larger social circle. And so for their personal experience to be at such odds with um, the kind of statewide and nationwide um, statistics makes them feel as if there's some kind of trickery going on at these larger scales. And so it's easier for them to kind of reject this kind of analysis and try to do their own. Mm -hmm. Do you know if this kind of behavior has any sort of correlation with political orientation? So, for example, could it be the case that 
people who lean more uh, right or left, for example, are more prone to promoting this kind of misinformation and sharing it and stuff like that? So um, I am hesitant, of course, to like make super big generalizations, but I will say in these specific groups that we studied and in the tweets that we studied, it does seem to like there does seem to be like a large propensity in the discourse to kind of talk about preserving one's freedom and um, uh, <laughs> preserving freedom, having the freedom to move about in a way that makes sense for them, making your own personal choice as opposed to um, accepting the kind of totalitarian um, and unjustified uh, sense of um, regulation on the part of like a state or a nationwide guidance. I think there's a lot of rejection of this kind of authority. So I will say in the particular groups that we studied, which I have to anonymize, um, there are also a lot of calls to um, attend Trump rallies. And so obviously this was um, in the past year um, before the election. And so I think there's, there's kind of mapping of the discourse between rejecting a lot of these social distancing guidelines, uh, broadly speaking, um, and trying to preserve freedom. Uh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. So, I mean, I asked you that question because I was just trying, trying to think that perhaps uh, people who share misinformation online, it's not because they're ignorant or stupid exactly, but because they are in a way trying to signal their belonging to a particular social group. Mm, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think like the, a lot of the things that they talk about, especially when it comes to the specific data, um, you know, maps onto a lot of this rhetoric that exactly, as you say, um, signals uh, membership in certain groups. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, rejecting the things that the CDC uh, might say, uh, and therefore rejecting a lot of, um, like, mainstream media narratives uh, that kind of show how alarming COVID is in the U.S. I mean, I think this is part of, like, a broader ecosystem of ideas. Um, that I would say leans farther to the right in the US. Mm -hmm. So, but to understand people's behavior online and more specifically on social media, is it important for us to study how people interact with computers? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think so. I can talk about it within the context of the study and then with a context more broadly to my research. Um, so I think given that that's one of my um, main uh, interest areas, like I feel incentivized just to say yes <laughs> to convince people that this is something they should think about. Um, I think in particular uh, with this case, I mean, we can talk about computers more broadly. Like it's not just about like the physical device. It's about a computing system. Uh, so I think when we're talking about people's interactions with data visualizations, they're also talking about the limitations um, and the promises of what their computer can do for them. Uh, so, I mean, I think there are things that like on a very granular, maybe even banal level, like, um, you know, looking at a data visualization on your mobile phone, for example, people might say like, oh, you know, this is really manipulative because, uh, 
since it's designed on mobile, like you can't zoom in as much as you could on a big screen. Um, and like, you know, that might be an argument for why a particular data visualization doesn't show the truth. When in reality, like this is a larger phenomenon about people's um, trust or not in particular kinds of information, especially mediated through devices like mobile phones and social media and um, their computers more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I was just thinking that maybe perhaps there would be some differences in between how people interact online and how they interact in other social settings in real life, let's say. I see. Um, hmm. So, I mean, I think maybe a way to kind of break that down, at least this is how I broke it down for me myself when I first started doing this research is that like obviously there are differences between um, working in digital spaces as opposed to meat space. Uh, that being said, I think a lot of what happens in digital spaces enables people to organize in like in meat space and especially in public settings like rallies and protests, etc. Um, so, I mean, I think as far as the specific groups that we studied, I think what was really compelling was that a lot of these groups, you know, were doing a lot of screen shares, having um, interviews with congressional candidates, organizing to go to protests and rallies. And so, I mean, I think I do see that translation from online action into, um, you know, brick and mortar action. Right. So are you saying then that uh, the kinds of behaviors people exhibit online translate into real life behaviors in the realm of politics, for example? Oh, yeah. I mean, I certainly think that's true. I mean, I think maybe a different way to think about translation would be to say that um, people start to reorganize their lives, their worldviews, um, like interact with other people in ways that might not have been possible um, without venues like uh, Facebook or Twitter. And, and that in itself translates into some kind of like real life um, uh, political action. Yeah, I was just thinking that maybe there would be a, a kind of chicken and egg problem here because, I mean, it could be that people already have their political beliefs and their political attitudes and mm -hmm. then they bring them online and not the other way around. Oh, yeah, I mean, so I guess the, the chicken egg analogy is perfect for describing exactly um, this phenomenon in the sense that people bring the political attitudes and assumptions and um, the conversations that they have offline um, into online spaces and vice versa. And so you certainly see a dialectical relationship between the things that people think and talk about, um, you know, with their family members at the dining table and like the things that they might post online. This isn't always true, but I do think in this particular case, it, there seems to be this correlation. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to spreading misinformation, is it that people in general do that or it's only a few number of people that do it uh, or that share most of fake news and stuff like that? 
So, I mean, I think it's hard for me to say about this case just because I myself did not go to these rallies and ask people whether or not they posted on Facebook groups, frankly, because I'm scared of the pandemic and don't want to go outside. Um, so I think uh, in some sense, it's hard for me to say just based on the research. Um, I'm sorry, there was an, a second part of the question that I forgot. Yeah, I, I was asking basically that if uh, spreading misinformation online is something that really has some sort of effect on people's behavior. I mean, if by being exposed to misinformation that really changes their behavior in important ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, with this particular case, I mean, maybe this is a little bit too obvious for me to say. I mean, I think people feel enabled to not wear masks in public spaces. Um, I think people share tactics um, to um, try to avoid wearing masks in business establishments that might require them. So I think one popular piece of misinformation was to invoke um, the American with Disabilities Act in order to say, um, you know, I have a medical condition that precludes uh, my being able to wear a mask. Therefore, like, please respect my legal right to not wear a mask within this establishment, whether it be like a restaurant or a store. Um, and, you know, like, I think one thing that was really popular were these cards um, that people would post online. Uh, I think you could also buy like a laminated version. Um, which basically has like a phone number to the Department of Justice or, you know, some other organization um, that people would basically print out and like give to a store worker um, in order to prove why they shouldn't wear a mask and be kind of loud about it. Yeah, there was another part to my previous question that I missed uh, when I asked you the second time. That is, so do we know if misinformation is spread online by most people or is it only a tiny number of people? This is hard for me to say um, just because we studied such a small set of groups. I mean, I think certainly there are people who are more prolific than others and like especially within the groups. Um, I think there were a certain set of people who were like the most active in terms of creating these data visualizations and doing, you know, daily, weekly updates um, with new data, um, obviously, because I think, you know, a lot of people have jobs and, uh, you know, other family um, or other obligations. Um, and so you have these kind of central people who've made this like uh, a new hobby. Uh, so. I mean, I think in the same way that there are certain people who are um, propagating a lot of these narratives, like those things wouldn't gain traction without a large group of people supporting them, interacting with them, sharing it with other people. Um, so I think, you know, there's certainly a community aspect to it as well as like a centralized figure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to the kinds of media that tend to share misinformation, I mean, there are people that say that mainstream media is very biased, but then we have new media and alternative media. So do you know if uh, it is one of those kinds of media that tends to, sh to share more misinformation? So in the cases that we looked at, so it wasn't so much about like particular publications like Breitbart. Um, 
it was more about these groups that, I mean, I would say comprised of normal people that you would find at the grocery store. Um, I think like one of the people that I was really interested in and who posted a ton on these groups, you know, you know was a high school teacher. Um, another was um, a nutritionist, another, um, you know, so I think uh, another was a software developer. I mean, I think in, in a lot of these cases, um, you know, they, they have other jobs. This isn't necessarily like, you know, they're not journalists um, and they're usually not public health uh, experts. And so this is something that I think they've really taken on as, um, you know, a significant, I think what they see as like a significant community service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that uh, at least to me personally, it seemed that some of these fake news surrounding the coronavirus and how to fight it uh, came mostly from or were propagated mostly on alternative media than mainstream media. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that would generally be the case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so going back to data visualizations, during this pandemic, we heard a lot about flattening the curve. So is that something that we can use data visualizations to help people make sense of this? Of this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think when we first started this project, um, yeah, the, the surrounding conversation um, on the flatten the curve graphic was a real starting point for us because I think, you know, it's it's kind of notable as a visualization just uh, for myself anyways, because um, it is by and large uh, data free, like it is a conceptual visualization more than anything else. Um, and I mean, I think, yes, uh, data visualizations like Flatten the Curve and um, ones dispensed by the CDC and publications like the Financial Times certainly helped people understand the extent and the urgency of the pandemic. Um, at the same time, I think what we've been able to find is that that's not always the case. Um, you know, you might use data visualizations to argue that there isn't a kind of urgency that, um, you know, public health officials might otherwise talk about. So that depends on the way you present information, right? Yeah, yeah, the way that you present information, the way that you um, identify certain data sets as um, valid or invalid, trustworthy or not trustworthy. I mean, I think there are so many different parts of the uh, like visualization pipeline, so to speak, before you actually even get to the graphic. So this work you're doing on data visualizations, could it help improve uh, how journalists and politicians, for example, communicate? Um, possibly. I, or at least I, I like to think so. Um, I, I try not to be too presumptuous. Um, I think so far the work that I've done hopefully helps people think about how using more data, being able to science things and visualize things isn't an unqualified good. So it's not as if like more data dashboards equals better decisions. Like I think that relationship is a little bit more complicated. Um, but I think ultimately what I hope to do with my dissertation is to show why, um, or, or rather how 
um, people, whether it be data visualization experts or journalists, politicians, et cetera, can make data visualizations more accessible to a wider swath um, of people. So I guess the short answer is yes, in terms of the how, TBD. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but I mean, so there are certain kinds of uh, visualizations that are easier for people to interpret than others, right? Um, I don't know if that's the case. I think it's okay. probably pretty context specific. I mean, I think there are certain kinds of data that are better expressed in bar graphs rather than line graphs, especially if it's a time series data. Um, so I, I'm not trying to avoid the question. Um, I guess I feel like the answer is always sometimes or it's complicated. Yeah, I was just thinking that maybe perhaps in certain situations, I mean, I'm not sure if it would be easier for, to tell people to study data visualizations and tell people what were the most effective ones in trying to convey certain types of information or if it would be better just to educate people on the different kinds of ways information is conveyed? Um, I definitely think it's the latter. I think you should definitely pick the visualization type to fit the data rather than the other way around. Um, just because I think, you know, sometimes if you're always trying to f make a bar chart, but the data isn't necessarily good for that kind of visualization, then it's useful to switch. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of really good books that help you really rethink um, the relationship between data and, and its visualization, um, but more broadly, just to think about the cultural, political, social stakes behind particular kinds of data and how it's collected before you even get to visualization. Um, I think those works are really, really important um, as we continue to move forward in this field. Yeah. Uh, do you think you, we can use this knowledge on data visualizations to help fight back against fake news and misinformation? Um, that's hard to say. Uh, like, I think maybe what our study has shown is that, like, it's not helpful to fight visualization with visualization because I think ultimately if people have a different reality and like, you know, use completely separate assumptions that are not necessarily compatible with one another, a visualization is not going to bridge that gap. If people can't, um, you know, at a baseline, agree on what data is valid or what data should be used in order to make decisions. Um, I like to think that visualizations help people make better decisions. I don't know that they are necessarily the solution to fighting misinformation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, data visualizations also influence policy makers, right? I mean, we've been focusing a lot on uh, normal common consumers, let's say, of journalism and other types of things like that, but they also influence policymakers, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a big impulse um, to make decisions, you know, policy and otherwise, uh, as data-driven as possible, and I think visualizations are a really easy output because um, you know, it's sparkly, beautiful, can be interactive. Um, it's obviously much more fun to 
interact with a visualization that it is to interact with a spreadsheet. Um, and so I think it is a really compelling um, tool within uh, someone's toolbox to do uh, any kind of like political or quantitative analysis. Yeah, I think that it was in your work that I read about multi-sensory data visualizations. Could you tell us about that? Sure. I mean, so I think an easy way to think about multi-sensory visualizations is to think about who's left out when um, you emphasize data visualizations as a kind of knowledge production. So I think maybe it's a little bit obvious to say, but data visualizations are not accessible to people who cannot see um, or who have low vision. And so a lot of the work that I'm trying to do, especially in the next year, is to really think about what visualizations would look like if we're not prioritizing sight. Um, so whether that's touch, smell, taste, you know, I think these are all different uh, tools that we have at hand in order to really think about the future of data visualization. Um, and I think really looking at the historical roots of these kinds of visualizations is what I'm really looking at. So. I think the history of tactile graphics, of Braille, um, you know, there are an entire set of visualizations that people have used and pioneered for a really long time. And I think it's really helpful to look at those historical origins as we try to make a multi-sensory future. And do you already have any idea about what other kinds of data visualizations that are not visual would work best for people who can't see? So, I mean, I think uh, a lot of the stuff that I've been thinking about, of course, are tactile graphics. So, um, you know, like raised dots, bumps, um, based primarily around Braille. Obviously, there are a lot of different problems with that in the sense that, you know, uh, not everybody can read Braille. Um, but I think really thinking about how um, we can think about tactile um, ways of approaching knowledge of approaching data is really where I'm trying to study more. Mm -hmm. But you're focused then on disabled people, on blind people in this case, or are you also thinking about other sorts of improving how data is presented to people who don't have those sorts of disabilities, but perhaps in a way that is that improves on what we have? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think certainly um, um, a large group of people who I've been in dialogue with are people with um, who are blind or low vision. Um, but I think I would say that a lot of these um, kinds of efforts or projects, um, like I, I want to think about like really, really large groups of people um, around the world who are disabled. So, you know, intellectual disabilities, other kinds of physical impairments, like I think there are so many different kinds of disability that I really want to be thinking about um, rather than isolating, uh, you know, particular kinds of needs um, when it comes to data visualization. So um, the short answer is yes, I definitely want to be thinking about like a whole range of disabilities, but also I think it's important to talk about how, um, you know, just because how um, designing something for people with disabilities um, isn't somehow uh, useful, if not uh, even uh, more helpful for people who don't have those disabilities. So the main um, uh, 
the the main example that I can come up with are like captions on videos, for example, obviously useful for people who are deaf, but also useful for people watching a video in a loud environment who you know don't have headphones or um, for people with a second language uh, for whom you know whatever the media is and um, you know they're watching it in their second language and I think all of those needs all of those um, different characteristics uh, are are the, all of those people are helped by the existence of captions and I think tactile um, data visualizations are not an exception to this. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your methodology. I mean, how, how are you going to study the these topics you're interested in? I mean, for example, how do you go about designing a study to learn more about what are the kinds of ways of presenting data that are better for people who have this or that disability? Yeah, so um, I think as you mentioned earlier, um, I use a lot of um, you know, archival uh, and ethnographic methods. So I think a lot of what I'm doing is uncovering the kind of long history of these kinds of tactile graphics. I mean, I think like people with visual um, disabilities have um, you know, been learning things like statistics, math, geography for a really long time. And I think um, they've been able to create and use um, you know, technologies that might not be more mainstream, but it's useful to really try to lean on this and, you know, learn from these histories rather than, you know, try to create something completely anew. So um, I'm really thinking a lot about these kinds of historical and archival sources. Um, I think in terms of looking towards um, more, uh, looking towards the present, I'm uh, using a lot of ethnography. Uh, so. Um, a lot of it is you know, talking to people, think, uh, thinking and uh, listening to what people have to say about what they want and need and like in what kinds of design are the most helpful. So, I mean, I guess the long and short of it is I read a lot about what people say and I try to listen and talk to <laughs> people uh, who are thinking about all of these same issues. Mm -hmm. But I mean, these would also have to be culture sensitive then, right? I mean, oh. you have to take into account the cultural backgrounds of different people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there are all sorts of different kinds of cultural norms around disability and cultural norms around, um, I mean, even the design of technologies. And so, um, I mean, if we're going to talk about, like, to kind of harken back to a previous question that you had asked me, people's interactions with computers, like, um, I think a really interesting example for me um, is the QWERTY keyboard. Uh, so, for example, like, the QWERTY keyboard is really ideally um, made for romantic languages. Um, and, I mean, I think thinking about how to adapt the QWERTY keyboard for um, languages like Arabic or Chinese, for example, you know, requires a lot of different um, reconfigurings to really think about like the best kinds of, uh, or to think about how people can interact with a piece of technology in a way that makes the most sense linguistically and culturally. Um, and I think these kind of cultural assumptions are embedded in all sorts of different kinds of technologies and um, data visualizations are not exempt from this. Mm -hmm. And talking about culture, I mean, 
uh, you are trying to develop ways of presenting information to people who need to be necessarily illiterate, right? Or do you also include pre-literate people from pre-literate societies? Um, I guess I'm mostly thinking about, um, so I, I will say that I don't quite know what you mean by literate and pre-literate societies. Um, I, I mean, say... people, perhaps to put it another way, people who go through form, for, formal schooling and know how to read and write. Oh, yeah, I would say that that is the case. Um, I think certainly um, there are a lot of efforts to really think about people who can't either read Braille um, or read in um, English, for example. Um, I think that's certainly a place where I'm. I want to go. I, I don't know that I'm there yet. Um, I think there there are lots of different hard problems, and I think um, that's kind of where I'm starting. Okay, uh, so are you also interested in trying to understand the role that data visualizations play in science? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, like you had mentioned earlier, uh, data visualizations um, exist in all sorts of different realms. I think science, policy, journalism are all, you know, important cases. Uh, and I think the way that people use data visualizations in scientific studies is um, certainly part of that. Mm -hmm. So, and with that, would we also learn something about how scientific research is done based on the kinds of ways information is presented or not? Um, sure. I think um, this is kind of like a reach project, and but something that I've been thinking a lot about is um, the way that certain scientists um, are thinking about data visualizations as a way to make AI interpretable. Uh, so I think there are a lot of ways in which um, these kinds of algorithms and, you know, uh, AI systems are completely black boxed and, uh, you know, people who make these models don't know how they work, but they work. Um, so, if, um, but being able to really explain why they work or how they work is kind of a hard problem. And I think a lot of computer scientists are looking to things like data visualization in order to do that. Um, uh, so I think um, for me, the real question there is, can data visualizations actually do what they want to do with it? Um, is data visualization the right tool? But more than that, like, what does it really mean to have um, you know, an algorithmic or an AI system be uh, interpretable like is interpretability or explainability something that we can actually achieve or should achieve yeah and i mean do you already have any ideas about that um so i would say that interpretability and explainability feel like very fuzzy terms uh that i'm still trying to understand and i think a lot of people in computer science are trying to understand um I mean, I think there's a larger question about epistemology and interpretation. And I think really grappling with those issues, even before we get to the data visualization, um, will be really important. Mm -hmm. 
so and and perhaps this will be my final question so you're also trying to make science more accessible to lay people or not um maybe i i guess i i don't really know um i guess i'm trying to make data visualizations more accessible to people with disabilities and uh to people more broadly so i i guess yes um I, I try to make science more accessible. I guess it's a really capacious question. I'd like to think that I am, um, but you know whether or not I'm successful is uh, we'll we'll see. Okay, great. So <laughs> let's uh, let's end on that note. Before we go, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Crystal JJ Lee, um, and they can find me on my website, um, which I I will. Uh, I hope that you can probably put it um, in the link below because I don't think I can say it fully out loud. Um, and I think from there, uh, my email is also um, visible. So Twitter, internet, and over email. Okay, great. I will include that in the description box of the interview. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Uh Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Ricardo. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing the channel for more than three years now. And it is thanks to people like you that it's been running for so long. And so if you like what I'm doing, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. And to consider making a pledge there, support the show. And otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share, share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Sam, uh, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londoño Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Alan or uh, Al Orwitz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, 
Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardos Frens, and Niroban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michelle Rugieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all. <laughs>